is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and she's a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute. She's been a long time dedicated Buddhist practitioner, and uh, I see her as a pioneer in the field of mindfulness and social justice. She is the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. And I, did you bring some copies? <laughs> Aside from that terribly marked up copy, um, they 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 are residing in the little room at my home instead of being okay. here. But I'll right. make sure we have some here after. We'll, we'll get some. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Rhonda is also serving as uh, our guide through. Uh, Represent Center's many communities, one Sangha program, which will be taking place over the next 10 or 11 months. So, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, dear Hassan. And thank you, thank you, thank you to each of all of you who have so lovingly welcomed me to join you uh, on this day. And a little bit more broadly speaking, uh, on this journey of deepening our embrace of, um, let's say, the challenges and opportunities presented by living in these bodies in, um, in a world we didn't create. Um, and supported, of course, by uh, the Dharma, um, the principles and practices of the Dharma, uh, and by including, of course, our Sangha. So I um, am really quite honored to join you. And uh, before really saying too much more, I wonder if you'll join me in just a few moments of sitting together. Again.
as we prepare to transition out of these few moments of touching deeply this present moment, this very life. And I offer the following few phrases inspired by traditional meditation practice of loving kindness. The invitation would be for you to follow along in my recitation and inwardly recite these phrases to the degree that you feel comfortable, maybe selecting the words that resonate deeply your own heart strings or perhaps simply feeling the quality of metta implied by these words deep within your own being, perhaps represented by the sun in our hearts as Tignahan so beautifully expressed it. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you, may we each and all be well in body and in mind. May you, may we each and all, may all beings be safe from inner and outer dangers. May all beings be truly joyful, easeful, and free. Thank you. Martha, could you bend the microphone a little closer to your mouth? Yes, certainly. Is this a little bit better? Yes? <laughs> Thank you. And I know too, sometimes when I'm speaking and offering meditation by voice because it's all Thank you. So I just, um, you know, I feel it's a sort of a very precious opportunity to be with you all at this time. Whew, October. 2022, there's so much going on in the world. And to be part of communities of practice grounded in real world circumstances and yet aspiring to, to bring forth the depth and richness of the insight, the wisdom, the compassion of the Dharma. It, it's not easy, at least in my humble experience. It's not easy to both be very humbly engaged in everyday life, taking up the work that we do in the particular places that we do it, in these bodies, 
in a world you didn't create, right? You gifted with this life, these lives. I smile when I think of that. Because despite the challenges that we experience, my own effort very clearly grounded in a deep appreciation for the gift presented by being alive together. And that awareness and that openness to being more aware of what all that means to me is embraced in and through this body and so cisgender female body and therefore being met in the world about the very many different trainings and challenges about where a body like this belongs, including intersecting that with being racialized African-American, meaning growing up in America, born in 1967, in North Carolina, right? Being particular about some of these details because it gives us a bit of a window into the kinds of trainings, conditionings that have been a part of what I've experienced. And so this sort of dance between this relative experience of identity in the world and opening awareness, opening to awareness of the absolute two sides, I think, of the same coin, not separate, form not different from emptiness, so to speak. So just different doorways in, the 10,000 doorways in, to insight, to compassion, to wisdom. This is my doorway. And partly because of this doorway and all that I'm pointing toward when I say this doorway, right? Born in North Carolina, granddaughter of Nanny Suggs, who was born in, also in North Carolina, but in 1906, in the period of the redemption and restoration of white supremacy following the Reconstruction. So my grandmother's life was very much comprised by the sort of engagement with the legacies of oppression that formed North Carolina in 1906 in the 20th century. And so when I come along in 1967, my grandmother is there. Fortunately for me, as a kind of guide and my first teacher, I saw her get up every morning before dawn, before she had to. And engage in a centering practice of, for her it was Christian, kind of prophetic Christian prayer-based practice. But it was a, a disciplined commitment of just reconnecting with her own being, her deepest values, and um, for her religious aspirations, and a sense of purpose to bring into her engagements into the world. And her engagements, of course, well, I shouldn't say of course, Nanny Sugg's engagements were very humble. Um, you know, the work she did was, at that time, 
not that different from the kind of work she would have done had she been born a century earlier. She cleaned houses. In fact, she cleaned one house for one family. I've written about this, but they were sort of, you know, kind of interestingly named the outlaw family. So she, <laughs> she would leave our house every day, cross town to, to spend the day cleaning and really attending to the needs of the outlaws, taking care of their young sons, the outlaw boys, whose pictures we would see in her bedroom. Because my grandmother understood that despite all these external kind of, you might say, rituals of deference and who belongs and who doesn't in the Southern context, one family, really, she understood that. Um, and notwithstanding all the kinds of deprivations and disregard that came with that hierarchy, There was some way in which she understood that there was always much more to who she was. And so I, as I come to you in, in, in an effort to really just offer a hand of support, frankly, you know, humbly to join with you in the work that you have already been doing, to bring forth um, these, this way and to more, more, more deeply embrace the call of liberation for all as a part of this way. Uh, I am uh, grateful that as I come and offer a hand of support, uh, I lean into the insight, wisdom, compassion, that I know to have arrived at my doorstep through the humble being of my grandmother, Nanny, and countless beings like her. Unsung, um, not known in the broader world as teachers, but a teacher, of course, nevertheless. So I am um, aware that uh, as a part of the process by which you all are being invited to really explore, you know, just how your sangha, how our sangha, how the one sangha, if you will, um, many communities, one sangha, being the name of the course that I co-created with Ushimi, Patricia Ikeda and Crystal Johnson. Um, you all know this is a course that you all have been given an opportunity to um, share and explore together. Um, we created this that course last year, 2021, in the midst of the still ongoing pandemic. <laughs> um, we met uh, for many hours, um, really, I think all of us in our different ways feeling called to offer whatever we might, again, as humbly as we might, knowing that we're all works in progress. We're all um, maybe at different places along a, a journey. 
but here perhaps to help each other as best we can. So in this course offering, um, each of us sought to draw deeply on you know, the, the dharmas, practices, principles, allied, and the, the practices and all the allied disciplines of study, being together in community, to help really turn us toward looking at what gets in the way of deeper inclusion and access, what gets in the way of more courageously seeing the barriers to compassion, which include bias and the sense of like certain people belong, certain people don't, certain ways of being resonate more with us, these implicit biases in particular uh, drove us toward really offering this course. And I say the implicit biases because I think in our communities, so many of us are already committed in a kind of, as much as we can explicitly to being the Dharma and to being you know, non-biased, open to caring and supporting and being, um, you know, not racist. <laughs> And the invitation, of course, is to really look at how a deeper commitment to not just not being racist, not being biased, but really exploring what a vision of true liberation, anti-racism is a term that you know we'll use, and we'll be using other terms that sometimes are hard to hear as we do this work. Um, really exploring how the rituals of white supremacy often implicit show up, um, align with some of our practices and ways of being. So what does it mean to be in right relationship to all of, of, of these sort of aspects of our experience in, in the world. What does it mean to really look at equity? What are the values, intentions, and commitments that can really support us in this work? And how can this Sangha offer greater safety, dignity, and belonging to all those who enter? So these are the sorts of questions that drove us in our effort and for me grounding in our deep values and aspirations, our deep commitments. Um, but also again that humility, knowing that it's lifelong work that we're about and nothing changes overnight. And as we do engage in this work, there will be challenges that we will constantly face there's certain challenges that we might predict already. I am new-ish to your community. I'm practicing just living in San Francisco, just across the bay. Um, I used to live in Oakland a long time ago, but I've been living in San Francisco for a very long time. But you know, I'm aware that even in this community, violence, um, racial tension um, is, is here. You know the. 
all of the challenges that come with economic inequality, you know, it's here. Um, and so I am really, really grateful to sort of be, again, a co-journeyer with you. When we think about, in particular, the Eightfold Path as a support, um, I know that you all have beautifully re sort of articulated um, a way of leaning into the Eightfold Path to support the changes that you seek to bring forth. Um, and there's so much we could say about how the path supports us. Um, and so much beautifully has been articulated. Right view, for example, aiming to turn the light inward to observe the ways in which conditioning preserved in our storehouse consciousness manifests in the rising of strong judgments, emotional reactions, hidden bias assumptions. In other words, expressing this intention to see things more clearly around race and racism. I've used the term color insight as a touchstone for what, um, what the past principles and practices might deliver us to in terms of a deeper insight about how race and racism and other forms of bias and isms and schisms show up in our world. So right view, of course, is about maybe turning toward and being willing to see from the ground of our practices. I'm pointing toward my book because I, the part one starts with grounding in the practices as best we can, and then the values, and then the foundational orientations in loving kindness and compassion and open, being uh, willing to touch into a beginner's mind, all of those sorts of things as a ground, but then seeing, part two of the book is about just seeing, and therein the connection to right view is implicit, I think. And there's so much we can say about that view. So not only turning toward the ways that bias manifests, but always remembering that beneath all of these trainings, conditionings, temptations to size each other up or awareness that maybe bias is coming our way, the schemas that we hold in our mind, the cognitive categories are sort of being demonstrated in our lives or we're feeling the sense of that. Being more open to being, to, to sort of exploring what is that really all like? How is race and racism constantly being recreated retrained in us. Being willing to see that more clearly, but never forgetting that in an instant, we can at the same time drop into the sense of our being I don't even know, I don't have the words for that part. <laughs> but you get what I'm sensing, what I'm trying to say, that there are, that the invitation is to not be afraid, to be courageously willing to more deeply explore at a personal, interpersonal, systemic, structural level what there is to see about how bias, how identity-based assumptions and norms might be getting in the way of our 
deeper engagement, while at the same time never forgetting the depth of our being. So right, to me that's about right view, it's about seeing all the dimensions a little bit more clearly, being willing to have the conversations we need to have about race and identity, and also being willing to turn together toward the moon, the sun, the sense of the ground beneath us as a support, without in any way bypassing right the challenges, right, to see that it's all always here. Sometimes I struggle with the right words, but I hope you're getting a sense and flavor of <laughs> what it is I'm trying to bring together here. Like, yes, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we're also never going to forget. Right? We're not going to forget that we are on this planet where absolutely everything is connected in on this mystery called life right here, right now, in the heavens, right here, right now, blessed with this moment, and we don't know beyond this. So may we energize our efforts with like that desire to just make the most of this opportunity. And that includes opening that aperture. So right view, right thinking, of course, right speech and action. So we're being mindful to the language and being willing to open up to teachings and learnings about new words and new ways of being around language because we've heard and willing to hear the pain that some of the ways we speak might land in someone else's experience and create a barrier for being feeling um, held and invited in and yet at the same time we're developing that capacity to open spaciousness around our own tender reactivity so that Yes, when a word is used that lands in a way that may feel um, unskillful or harmful, we also open up that aperture on, here we are as human beings, works in progress. All um, struggling in ways that are not obvious, no matter what levels of privilege and disadvantage we all occupy, we're all suffering in these bodies at this time. So having that ability to give each other the room to grow, really, really important, right, as we do this work, with love. So I see that as a part of what it means to examine right speech and the conditions for that, the ability to offer a little bit more safety and to receive that. And right action in the same way, to explore what right action might be calling us to do differently and also to explore how we meet each other you know in that field of, of exploration of inquiry of beginning again with humility and with love so i'm going to pause right there <laughs> pausing to invite these simple words that I've offered to settle. And as we breathe in and out together, 
in this one moment that we know we have. I want to open it up to any reflections or questions that may be coming up. Thank you. Um, first, I want to say uh, thank you for talking about being from the South. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I grew up in the South and um, I certainly wasn't the, the socioeconomic of the outlaw family, <laughs> um, but I, I grew up witnessing things that I never understood. They really felt something was wrong, but I didn't start learning that, what that was until I was, you know, in, in my twenties. But I've been reading, I've been very excited about this book I've been reading. It's by Will Smith, uh, no, it's named, Will Thomas is his pen name. He planned in 1947 to move his black family from Los Angeles to, are you familiar with this book? I know. To um, Haiti, because he wanted his family to be in that environment. He changed his mind because he decided he didn't want to leave America. Mm -hmm. So he moved him, his, himself, his wife, and his three children to Vermont. He chose Vermont because their constitution from the beginning said, we will not allow slavery. It's 1770, maybe. They also gave rights to uh, black men to vote. So, um, so he moved them there. And um, I want to read a little bit. He, he, there's a, some online, there's a, he wrote an essay and he's reading it. And I, I've listened to it, but I've also been reading his book. And he said, unless one seeks sincerely for whatever it is he most wants, he surely will not find it. And that, and that what I really had been seeking most of my life was not what I wanted, but instead was justification for the resentments I felt. This is not to say there was not cause for those resentments, but rather that I had so concentrated upon them, I could not see that the picture was not all bad. That in fact, there was considerable good in it. I had condemned my country and my religion because I viewed only what seemed wrong in both. But when I was able to remove the blinds of my own justice or my own prejudice, it became clear that these failures, these flaws in church and state were human failures, human flaws, and not mere self-willed bigotry, and that within each there were, and there always had been, many who had worked and fought for what was right. Mm -hmm. I think the core of my earlier bitterness had been the conviction that I had been denied my birthright of human dignity. But I now know that is something which cannot be given or taken away by man. So I, I was really caught by him talking about his own prejudice. And reading the book, mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, first half is about being in Los Angeles second half is about being in Vermont and, and um, I don't see or read in in modern things this talk about how there's there's sort of two sides and how we all sort of have to work together to deal with this and 
Um, and I guess I want to know what you think about what he said. I know I'm putting you on the spot here. It's kind of out of Not really. But oh, good. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, as you all know, I've suggested my book as a support. Um, I'd be curious what your question would be after reading my book, <laughs> because indeed, um, yeah, there's much that I find resonant in that. And actually, I, in my experience, um, there are many who in contemporary times are writing in similar ways. So I do think it is a question often of opening the aperture to see more fully what is available and recognizing that, um, you know, we are often being manipulated, we are being, you know, the, I think a challenge of our time is to reclaim our attention because many people are seeking to tell us what to think. And these, I call them little jokers sometimes. They're so wonderful in so many ways, but they are all part of what we're struggling with, right? They're kind of reinforcing, oh, you read that article, here's another one. I'll tell you more of a sort of the same. But if we stand back and reclaim our attention, we will see there are so many different sources and resources to support us in this journey. And um, so, um, you know, I didn't hear anything in what you read, admittedly, just this is, my, this is my first time hearing it, but I didn't hear anything in what you read that was surprising or different in any fundamental way from my own perspective. In fact, you know, I've written a lot about human dignity as a kind of a foundational font of inspiration. You know, I've written a lot of different, this, <laughs> you know, I've written about humanity consciousness and race and humanity consciousness needing to be inter, they are, they inter are anyway. The question is how aware are we of the way in which whatever is invited to us as universal humanity sometimes is normed around only, you know, kind of a tilt in terms of what kinds of human beings are invited into experience of universal humanity. But that call toward feeling our own rich inheritance as being alive. And, you know, I was reading of a particular anthropologist who was talking about what distinguishes human beings is that ability, that ability that arose in our shared human history eons and eons ago to, you know, like all mammals, we suffer, we get ill, we die. But at a certain point, human beings started to stop and attend to each other when we suffer. We started to figure out how to help another one tend to a broken arm and therefore heal and therefore Thrive, whereas you know, so many of our other beautiful non-human beings 
have not had that ability to sort of evolve that ability to see each other's suffering and to assist. We do have that gift. And so, yeah, here we are, finding our, opening up the aperture on all the different ways that we can together deepen our humanity, but certainly seeing the willingness to listen to each other's experiences today. And even the painful ones, right? Even those who are saying, yes, I'm gonna talk about how racism is negatively affecting me, but not holding them responsible to, you know, speak about it in the way that we feel comfortable before we're willing to hear their particular view on this. These are the invitations that I think this work is going to present. So I thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, my dear, thank you. Thank you for, for this talk and this interaction. It was very sweet. I have a question about law school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about what? Law school. Oh. Law school. <laughs> law professor here. I'm, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, do you have like that elevator comment to make about how you bring this to your professoring? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's exactly an elevator comment, but I'll be as pithy as possible. Yeah. Um, I bring it in in every way I possibly can, stealth and explicit now. Okay. Um, I teach courses on mindfulness and law called contemplative lawyering that I've been teaching since 2009 at the University of San Francisco and at Berkeley for a semester in different places. Um, I, you know, I bring it in in um, orientations to new law students at USF, at Hastings, at different law schools around the country now. Um, so that I am often now the first law professor that law students get in the Bay Area and in this orientation around, I don't wear these robes, <laughs> but in this orientation around how to see one's identity as a lawyer through a lens that is humbly calling forth an inner developmental path as they do the cognitive, the seek to do the knowledge, skills, and values training, but that they also realize that this is about being in right relationship with the challenges and opportunities that being a counselor will present. And that's a lifelong personal journey that I want to inspire them to kind of infuse with a certain humble commitment that, that walks the path of law for them. So um, thank you for that question. Yeah, we're, we're doing it, we're bringing it into law in so many different ways these days. So there's a Mindfulness and Law Society that I helped kind of hold space for. It's a national um, community of practice for lawyers. Um, this week, happens to be mental health for law students week. <laughs> so uh, we put an extra effort to the law students to join us for meditations. Because I offer a meditation weekly drop-in at my law school as well. So we, we're just, we're doing every little thing that we can. And we know, that we hope that these little things can make some difference. Thank you.
It is not easy. And in fact, I'll say, you know, so I've been teaching law for more than 20 years. And uh, last year I took a leave of absence, an unpaid leave of absence, so that I have some more space to discern what might be called for in the next phase of this life. And if it be that I stay in law, how better to keep doing this work, um, you know, faithful to all the different things that we have to do. I mean, I'm a law professor, you know. And yet, high, higher education generally, neoliberal, you know, kind of values, all the things that we're up against in the world are showing up right in academia and showing up right in law, as we know. So it's, um, it's been increasingly challenging to keep being, um, going against the stream in law. But because that is, of course, what we're doing. But, um, but sometimes you just answer the call. So I'm back at the law school, not 100% full time. I'm now at the moment, 80%. But it's because of this commitment to making a way out of no way, as my grandmother Nanny would say. You make a way out of no way. And we're trying to make change where we are. But it is not easy. You know, and I see that as, again, it's like there's so many different ways we can think about our work, the work we're called to do out in the world, in our sanghas. You know, I have a friend who is um, um, a Jodo Shinshu uh, Buddhist practitioner uh, living in Oakland, raising children in Oakland, um, multi-generational Asian-American um, uh, cisgender woman. And, you know, I'm aware of how her and how Asian American heritage so richly infusing our communities in the Bay Area is also kind of, uh, it feels like an elephant in the room of our, zen, of our zendo sometimes. You know, the way that, um, the racism, frankly, that uh, many of our Asian American um, friends and community members, um, Sangha members, um, the racism that was experienced and has been experienced here in the Bay Area against Asian Americans is part of the deep legacy of the, what feels like a divide sometimes between various sects and ways of practicing Buddhism. And so there's so many ways that the work that you all may be, you know, sort of deepening over the next you know, many months and beyond, just may open up new conversations and opportunities, but that is, you know, that may move us against the, our own streams. So I'm saying that when I think about saying, yes, I'm staying law and do what I can to move in the street. You know, each of us has an analog to that. And the work that you'll be doing in your song will have, will have an analog to that. Like, yes, there these traditions. I'm there to help students pass the bar. I'm not there to come in and change absolutely everything. And the changes that I make 
or maybe subtle. So similarly, our sanghas are, are often formed in certain ways. We're not going to change them overnight. And so it's like, how do we be in wise relationship with what we're called to bring forth at this time? Not easy. That's what we're doing together. And I honor all that is within you that you lean into on this journey. Maybe we have time for one or two more reflections or questions. Oh, I don't see any. Yeah, if there's if there's anyone in the online Zendo who has a question, I don't see a hand raised um, as of now. It's hard for me to actually reach and open it up. But anybody has a question? Oh, we see. Yes, thank you, my dear. Here in in the present Zendo. I'll offer a reflection or. Um, I was just noticing at some point, can you hear me? I can, thank you. At some point, I heard you say something about how we're going to, in this program, talk about racism and anti-racism, and at the same time, holding uh, togetherness and all, all that. And what I noticed something in my body of when you said we're going to do this, the first part, racism, anti-racism, I was like, there's something in these, like it was palpable, very yeah, uncomfortable. And then when you said the other, and we're also doing this, I just kind of went. <laughs> <laughs> just this sense of of ease and relaxation, and <coughs> and then I thought about that experience, mm -hmm. and how do we not just stay over there? Because that moment when you just crystallized it. So there was this like, oh, agitation here. I just wanted to offer just this. Yeah, share that experience with you and everyone. And the question it prompted. Thank you so much. I'm bowing to your experience and to this good question. Good question. Thank you. Uh, and I want to just open up the aperture and invite me reflection again. This is why we have these moments of question and answer is for all of us. Was there anything resonant in what was just shared? Right? When I name, we're going to look at racism, anti-racism, all the isms and schisms, what's coming up in our bodies? Are we feeling a little bit of tension? Each one of us, of course, is, is a world of experience and trainings and personalities, <laughs> right? So deep bows to all of us for having the courage to even say we're going to try to do this together. Because in my experience, you know, if I'm just honest about what it's like for me to look at my own experience and try to clarify my own mind, I'm going to sometimes find values in conflict and <laughs> stories in conflict and, and you know, painful memories and stories and images. So I just imagine when I sometimes, you know, the words that we use to describe the kinds of things that we're looking at do trigger in a certain sense those um, bodily sensations that remind us that we have had experiences around these things, that we have seen what happens in the world 
when we try to bring up these topics, right? So as you helped us just to sort of bring this explicitly into the room, just saying that each of us probably have some way of really resonating with what you're saying. And that piece of like, ah, we also name that we're going to be doing this by leaning into our practice, opening up to the sense of our inherent belonging. I always think of it as like, you know, life selected for all of us. There's really no accidents, we're here, you know? And to me, there's like a gratitude and you see the smile that automatically comes on my face and I realize that. And yet it can be very challenging to, to sort of bring those two together, like the fierce willingness to see more clearly the inequities in our midst and the, you know, the personal, interpersonal and the systemic structural ways that they are hard to undo and they keep coming back. Uh, to have that courage to look at those, but also be able then to ha huh, ground ourselves in, let's call it the Dharma and the practices and principles and disciplines of these, of what we call the Dharma that invites this question, are we able to continue that both and, if you will, that multiple perspective on reality that we're inviting in? And I say, yes, I say, absolutely. I say like, if we can't do it with, if the, if the Dharma isn't helping us with this ability to, you know, more skillfully speak to the multi-dimensions of what it means to be alive. I mean, I, you know, I'm here because I believe that these practices support, may support us. I'll say may support us, <laughs> right? If we, if we lean into them for this, they may support us in ways that other modalities, in my experience, don't as well. But it is never easy. So it does, I think the question of how do we keep you know, not bypassing, not going into spiritual bypass of like, isn't it nice we just stay in the all one place and, you know, don't harsh my mellow about bringing up racism again, right? <laughs> or aren't we done with that? I thought we had that conversation about race, racism. Can't we just sit again? So it's, I think, the part of how do we keep, you know, being in that, you know, seeing, for me, it's, 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 it's this is equanimity you know, one of the four noble abodes, the Brahma Viharas, compassion and sympathetic joy, right? Um, and, and empathy and, right, and loving kindness. And yes, equanimity, the flow. And that is something we need to keep uplifting. That's what we're practicing, yes. Now, as you're speaking, I'm getting the thought that it's the second part that gives me the energy and the inspiration. All of the, the juice. Yeah. Yes. That's to me love, I'm going to say also. <laughs> when I think of the four Brahmaviharas, like the shorthand word for me is just going to be love. Like, I know, I know, whenever, again, I am a lawyer and a law professor and a Dharma person. So whenever I use words, I'm always thinking the image in my mind is like that finger pointing to the moon. I know that 
any word I use might be interpreted in this and that kind of way. And if we get too cognitive, we can get into some big argument. So I hesitate sometimes to use the L word straight up. But love <laughs> is my shorthand for what this is about. You know, for, for, you know, when I think about being aware that we have this moment and we don't know, we hope and pray we have, you know, as my grandmother would say, we hope and pray we have a long life and we plan and we do all, but we, we have this moment. And then that question, how do we want to live? How do we want to be with each other? How do we want to be in relationship to all that is? from that insight that this could be the last. And personally, that's where the juice and the inspiration keep showing up. If there's one word that defines what I'm hoping to lean into as a support for the work, it is love. It is that sense of that loving embrace of the possibility and potential of this moment to be new and better and more healing and more capable of <sighs> a sense of spacious holding of everything, right? Then the last moment, or then our ancestors were able to access. We have the possibility. And so for me, love is the word that I use <laughs> to the shorthand for that equanimous, that, that sort of leaning into the possibility but it is a courageous kind of love because it says, if I need to hear someone explain to me how they even hurt, I don't, I, I'm here for that. I'm, I'm, I'm right here for how we need to make things better for all of us to thrive. And, I, and that to me is what love can look like, that listening as love, that making an effort to change a policy as love, that effort to change the law as love. Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public. Martin Luther King had a very similar view of love and justice as being intertwined. So, um, my dear ones, we've come to that time where I think I need to invite us into the pause, right? Because in a certain way, we, you know, it's all one. <laughs> and, but yet we have to finish in a formal sense this talk. So I, um, again, thank you all. Thank you all, thank you for this time. And I wish you well on the journey from here. <laughs>